Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, a Flats and Shanks special. It's a special, isn't it, Tom? Is this the one that you were talking about last week, which you gave no yeah. hints to, and you said yeah. you were going to put up on social media, but you didn't? And yeah. I started to think that you possibly might have got Apollo Creed from the Rocky franchise. Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. <laughs> I couldn't remember his name then. I saw. <laughs> Just hold on to that damn chopper. Um, What's the matter, Dylan? CIA got you pushing too many pencils. It's um, he. I watched a video the other day on. Uh, it was really oh brilliant. Well, I'm trying to remember a meme on social media, and it, I think Bigsy sent it to me, or I've got a mate Foyk from school. He sent me some brilliant stuff. He sent me, and it was the Rocky movie where Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed, aka Sly and Carl, are on the beach and they're doing their beach runs. Yeah. Right? And do you remember Apollo Creed? Like, he, he just wins every race. Yep. Rocky's immobile. He's muscle bound. That stuff. And eventually, Rock wins one, and yep. that's the moment, right? Soundtrack blaring, amazing. When you watch it, when you watch uh, the actual video, and the video, the meme was really funny. It was, it, <laughs> it was, it was dads in the neighbourhood racing to tell the guy who's washing his car hey you can do mine next which is like the most unoriginal gag ever i love that you do mine next as they walk past him you know when you such a dad comment right i love that but when you watch the video it's the one that rocky finally wins and i showed Freya, and i was like look at sylvester stallone he's absolutely flat sticks mate he's pedal to the metal carl weathers is about is running at about 40 (laughs) percent it's like it it would barely be a warm-up stride out hollows just Carl Withers doing yeah. hollows. Yeah, he's not even bothering, mate. He's no. just got to let Rock win. Anyway, um, that's what I thought. Yeah. I love Carl Weathers. Um, he was, God. Now, that is, a, that is a beautiful physique, Carl Weathers. Wowza Roonies. 
Wow, yeah, should have entered like Mr. Olympia or something like that, couldn't he? Yeah, I hope he was on drugs. Otherwise, it's just unfair, isn't it? Bit of hypertrophy down him, and he could have gone all the way, Mr. Olympia. Yeah, um, right. He's not piece. coming on. He's not coming on. Is he still alive? <laughs> it's going to sound. We've back. got no. We've got uh, Dolph Lundgren coming on. We've got <laughs> Ivan Drago. <laughs> Ivan Draco we've got coming on. No, we have got um, Russ Tucker coming on, who is a very, very bright sports scientist man. Lots of you might have heard of him, lots of you might not. What I would say is, I think his handle on Twitter is Science of Sport, but he is a man who for a while now, since 2015, as we'll find out, has been involved uh, with World Rugby, and we'll talk about his remit, but he is involved in the data gathering and implementation side of player welfare and player safety uh, in Rugby Union. Um, So... Shall we get He's, into it? Shall we get into it now? Yes. Let's just do it. Let's just get Ross Tucker on right now. Here we go. Ross, hello. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Is your head spinning at the moment like a busy man? It's slowing down now as the dust settles. But it <laughs> yeah. was a crazy week last week. But in a in a good way. I mean the conversation's important. So if it's in the if it's in people's minds, then I'm happy. I actually didn't realise you were a real person, Ross. I thought like um Austin Healy had set up some sort of ghost profile and was just <laughs> pretending to be Ross Tucker. So it's it's great to to hear from you because we follow you online all the time. Um you're <laughs> like you. a, a source of knowledge when it comes to the tackle area. Um, can you just can you give us a little bit of um, some background information about yourself, what you do, your favourite colour, um, <laughs> your role within World Rugby, and and what your remit is, really? Yeah, so, sure. Thank you for again for inviting me on. I work for World Rugby as a researcher, and I came on in beginning of 2015, and my main role is to help World Rugby gather evidence that's then used to make decisions around player welfare. And obviously, you would both know the concussion question is the most pressing issue the sport is faced with. And so literally on day one, I remember flying to Dublin and picking up newspapers talking about ban the tackle. You know, the Six Nations was about to begin. And it was actually quite a revelation for me because here in South Africa, these conversations weren't happening in 2015. Even now, it's much rarer than it is where you are. But I found myself then trying to study concussion. And the focus from World Rugby had shifted from the medical side of identifying and diagnosing them with the pitch side assessments and the HIAs and on to prevention. So the first big project that I undertook for the sport was in 2015 and it was an analysis of all the head injuries that we had video footage of. And so every time a player sustains a, an impact and goes off for an HIA, there's a video file. And so we basically sat down and said, let's look at all these cases of head injuries and try and explain exactly what circumstances are more likely to cause them. Because if you can understand when they happen and you can create basically what are spectrums of risk, behaviors of the tackler, behaviors of the ball carrier, then you can start thinking about whether there's a way to prevent them. You know, in the, it's a cliche, but in the injury space, they say the best injury is the one that never happens. And so you're trying to prevent concussion instead of treat it. So that was a study that, that was then undertaken. We ended up producing a report which became a scientific paper and it was then shared with a, a group that was put together of coaches and referees and former players at a meeting in Dublin, and it kind of gave rise to the whole uh, campaign to sanction high tackles more harshly to try and bring the height down. And the reason for that, very simply, was that we found that one of the biggest risk factors for head injury to both players, this is very important, is where the contact is on the ball carrier's body. And, and if, the, if the contact is higher, then what it does 
is it puts the two players' heads, the tackler and the ball carrier's heads, in the same airspace. And that's a very dangerous situation. A, because there's two heads, not one. And B, because head-on-head is by far the most likely impact to cause a concussion. Next comes head-on-elbow, then head-on-knee, then head-on-arm. And so three of those four are so-called higher contacts, and the knee obviously very low. But at the other end of the extreme, torso or upper body is where the head should be safest. So the, the main finding from that study was that if you want to reduce the risk of head injuries, you want to bring the tackle height down and in particular get the tackler's head into a safe zone between the ball carrier's hips and sternum or shoulders, if you wish, as often as possible. So so in terms of the around the 2015 mark, the movement towards sanctioning high tackles more aggressively uh, or progressively, depending on perspective, um, did that did that does that appear to be working, or is it not working? Uh, to is it not working sufficiently so that actually more action needs to be taken? Did it? Is it, are we moving now to prevention over sanctioning because it didn't really work? In part, yes. I I'm not quite ready to hammer the final nail in the coffin of the sanction approach. I mean, when we had that meeting. We said to the coaches, how do we do this? Do we lower the height in law or do we sanction law more severely? And they all said, lowering the height in the law will, cha- will create some challenges that we don't believe the sport is ready for just yet. And so our recommendation is that you sanction it more harshly. And, and you'd both know, in the first six months of that directive in 2017, there were massive increase in, in cards. There was major confusion, controversy, criticism. The sport then tried to respond to that by creating a high tackle sanction framework to improve the consistency and the understanding and the communication of these high tackle decisions. That met with mixed success as well. There was very inconsistent application around the world. In in some competitions, red cards actually went down after the (laughs) introduction of the framework. Mm -hmm. It was then replaced in 2020 by the head contact process, which is still in use today. And, and my impression from looking at the data is that we're only now, in 2022-23 season, starting to see more consistency and agreement. And if, the, if you understand the, the premise of that was sanction, the, the red card especially, carries the message to change the behavior. If that message is inconsistent or erratically applied and causes confusion, then the message never gets through. And so I think that's undermined it a little bit. So I wouldn't yet condemn it to not working but I, I think it has been hampered by implementation issues which are actually not that dissimilar to what followed the RFU's announcement is is if, if you don't bring stakeholders along with you then the best theoretical plan in the world just won't work. Who's most at risk Ross in in the tackle area is it the attacker carrying the ball or is it the defender tackling which, yeah. which risk are we trying to mitigate the most? Well, this is the, this turned out to be the most crucial and, and paradoxical finding and the one that's tripped us up a little bit because it turns out that the tackler is the one at risk. Most people, and certainly when we began, we thought maybe it'll be split evenly. Mm. But about 75% of all the tackle concussions happened to the tackler. And only mm. one in four happened to the ball carrier. Now, the reason that matters is because most people intuitively understand that if you want to protect the ball carrier use the law you know so for instance most laws are written in a way that you can see they they protect the recipient of the action not its initiator (laughs) whereas what we're finding here is that the person who 
initiates the act, the contact, the tackler, okay, and I, I appreciate the ball carrier sometimes does that too, mm. is the one more at risk. And so there's a paradox is how do you protect the player from their own decisions, their own execution, their own actions? And that's caused a lot of confusion. Now, yeah, it's, uh, and it's similar to the, to the lowering of the height issue. It's easy, it's theoretically easy to protect the ball carrier because the only way the ball carrier gets a concussion is if he's struck on the head. You can get some caused by ground contact or whiplash, but they're very, very uncommon. The direct forceful contact to the ball carrier's head is an obvious thing you want to stop. Protecting the tackler is less obvious because his or her head is always in the game. So now the question becomes where, where is it safest in the game? And that's, that's where the torso upper body bit came in. But yeah, it was a paradox that I think we still haven't fully resolved. That that is fascinating, actually, and i I think I think kind of the answer to this long winded question, Ross. I think, but when when you're you're trying to talk about the tackler is the is the player the person most at risk. So you're actually what we're what when the RFU released this directive last week, whenever it was a few days ago, before the backtracking and the addition of you know promised nuance and promised common sense and conversations and those sorts of things. So aside from that, the word waste, when it said waste and below, mm. that seemed to cause a lot of problems. So I asked this question on behalf of a lot of people who have read that and become incensed or disincentivized uh, by it, waste and below, because are we not then sending, according to waste and below, are we not then sending tacklers towards charging kneecaps and hip bones? That's not where I want to put my head, not where a lot of amateur people and players want to put their head. Um, so you're, are you not sending tacklers into another danger zone? Well, yes, that? and that's, the, that's exactly the question. I mean, that's the most important question. I think a lot was lost in the, in the emotional response yeah. and some of the anger to it. Um, and, and I do think there were some legitimate concerns about the way it was implemented and announced in the absence of consultation. But I think a lot of people have bundled their anger at the way um, in amongst their anger at the what. And, and the what is that you still want to lower the tackle, I think, to be safer. And then the question becomes how far. And I mentioned before that head and shoulder contacts are considerably the most dangerous. Then, so, so that creates almost a red zone from the shoulders up. That's what you want to really avoid, heads hitting heads and heads hitting shoulders. Then there's a green zone from, let's call it the sternum or the armpit, down towards the waist. And then from then onwards, you get back into what's an amber zone. It's not quite as dangerous as at the top, but it's still dangerous. And you're right. You yeah. don't want people then flying in at knees, not only for head injury risk. I mean, in, if, you, knees if too. you hit the knee yeah. at the yeah. wrong time, that's a, that's a year-long injury, career-ending injury potentially. So, yes, that's, that's the one problem is it swings from one extreme to the next. And actually, you're trying to find, I don't know, call it the Goldilocks zone, you know, not too hot, not too cold, not too high, not too low. <laughs> yeah. That's what you just want to right. try and achieve, just yeah. right, exactly. And then the question is, well, how best do you do that? And there is an issue here where if, if your target point is, let's say, the navel, the belly button, your head will be at the softer part of the torso in the stomach area. So that's actually quite safe. If you target 10 centimeters too low, that's when you run the risk of those head-hip impacts. Yeah. But if you're 10 centimeters too high from the sternum, then it's head-head. So it's all about, I think, trade-offs. You know, where do you where do you accept the risk, and what do you do if the player's inaccurate by 10 centimeters? Which risk would you rather have? And that's the yeah. thing that authorities, I think, are trying to calibrate 
and then and then of course they have to weigh that up against the the impact it has on the game because tackling at the waist or I think a lot of people also by the way hear waist and they think top of the shorts the waist is actually a little bit above the top of the shorts it's about seven or eight centimeters above that I mean um, I wear I wear my jeans just below my gut whereas Shanks <laughs> pulls his up right past his navel both of us look weird but it's open to have, interpretation isn't it so you might want to tackle some players below the belt <laughs> yeah, and exactly, others yeah and others not above theirs depending so but that's one of the I mean, you, you sort of joke about it, but that's one of the dilemmas for the authorities here yeah. is, is you're defining even sternum is a is a vague area. Now, I don't I don't know that armpit is low enough to cause significant enough behavior change because mm. the armpit compared to the shoulders is a ve- it's a very small difference. And I think you could make a case that a lot of the time tacklers are already targeting the armpit anyway. So if you if you lower it to there, is that enough of a of a change to change behavior? And if not then it achieves very little for concussion risk. So you've got to go lower maybe, but too low starts to cause the other trade-offs to come in. So it's, a, it's, a, it's trickier than it may seem. Ross, who decided to, do you know who decided to implement these trials in the community game? Because it, it's important. It is in the community game, in the community game. It's not at the moment in the professional game, but we think, you know, it, it may transfer into the pro game, in, into the pro game. Um, how long will this trial go on for and when do you foresee any decisions being made as to what happens next? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I don't know the answer to actually any of those questions. I don't know who it was at the RFU. Oh, good. We, we found to... a weakness, Tom. We yeah. found a weakness, mate. <laughs> Keep going. I don't, see, that's, I don't know who, who and how the, the decision came about. I know that World Rugby has allowed and encouraged unions to manage their own community game heights the way they wish to. So, for instance, in 2018, the French were allowed to change it to the waist, as you, as you know. Uh, last year, in November, New Zealand announced that they were changing it to this below the sternum, mm. which is also something that was given World Rugby's blessing. Because there is, as I say, the concept of lowering height is supported. It's the yeah. how that starts to make a difference. As for how long it goes... You have to be careful because if you don't give it long enough, then you don't ever discover the the change. We trialed it in Stellenbosch at the university competition. It was trialed in, as you know, in France. And in both those competitions, it takes three or four months before you see anything even start to shift on concussions. All you get for the first three or four months is a, is a bunch of penalties, but no reduction in concussion risk. So you have to allow for it to and that and that by the way is the championship trial that was done was eight weeks in the middle of the season it was never going to be enough time to show anything in fact just causes more problems than it resolves so they should give it at least one year i would suggest two seasons and then based on feedback and whatever injury data is available mm-hmm. they should m- probably make that call in two years i think the, the difficult thing is that people have got into a habit of tackling a certain way and then we've got to recoach them and and um mm-hmm. we, we coach them into a new tackle style technique is is going to be hard in the short term but ross weren't these trials already haven't they already taken place in 2019 and weren't they stopped because their team's in the championship, we're getting more concussions. How how are mm. these trials different to the ones we saw in 2019? They were, and that, that 2019 study was the ill-fated eight-week-long intervention. It had a few a few things happened as a result of that, and I remember 
sitting in a meeting with the coaches when when the RFU announced the trial, and it wasn't very well received. Coaches and players and staff obviously have their own incentives, and I don't think they took too kindly to having this this lower height thrust into their cup competition midway through the season. What it basically meant was that players went from one height in, let's say, week eight to having to lower height in week nine, all the way Jeez. through to 16, mm. and then back again. It's impossible. So that wasn't, that wasn't a good way to go about doing it. And also, there was so much confusion then about what the tackler was meant to do if the ball carrier dropped in height. So, you know, there are often situations where the ball carrier receives a pass and then puts the head down and leads with the head. Yep. And now the tackler's saying, well, I've got to get below the, in that case, armpit. So it, it created, in their perceptions, a race to the ground. And you had these two players trying to get outmatch one another getting lower. And if you understand what I said earlier on about head-to-head is the most dangerous situation, that's the case when you've got two low players just as it is yeah. two high players. So all, all that eventually happened there in that study, I think, is you moved head-to-head from high, high tackles to lower tackles. Yeah. And so it didn't show anything. And I think... What needs to be done then, it, it, it was a lesson in how carefully and nuanced you have to be in your communication and your implementation. And so the differences now, I gather, will be they'll have to, they'll have to communicate some approach to what happens when the ball carrier goes low. Because there are, there are head contacts in the sport that are, in effect, unavoidable mm, yep. and not initiated by the tackler. Every pick and go and every try line defensive stand from five meters out involves multiple contacts to the head and they've never been penalized and they shouldn't be because it's it would be impossible to make that tackle so the sport needs to be sensible about that it needs to be clear about that or it has to pass accompanying laws that prevent the ball carrier from leading with the head that's like like flats you know we used to call them the mole ross because (laughs) as soon as you got the ball head would be straight down you can't get dump dump tackled if your nose is six (laughs) inches off the ground you can't so the question then to you, and again, I'm no rug- rugby expert, but what? Well, how do you tackle that player? You, I think I think you're right. I think that what this whole, um, I mean, the, the communication around the thing is is a, is a separate subject, and Shanks and that Shanks and I will have that away from you because it's all opinions really rather than fact, but and it's not really that well informed. But I think it it the the community game or basically 99.9 percent of people who are involved in rugby in the United Kingdom <laughs> need to be told um, that there is going to be far more nuance to it than waste and mm. below or you're out. And right. I think gradually there'll, there'll be a conversation now. It's all been backwards, hasn't it? Let's face it. It's been brought out. Everything's been communicated backwards, but there's, I, I, there has, you have to be allowed that rugby has to accept that there is a level of risk. And actually part of that risk, I think can be up to the player Equally, what we do know, and I, I presume you'll agree, is that if you leave all physical slash medical decisions up to rugby players, a lot of them will make bad decisions. Shanks and I made terrible decisions about our own safety when we were playing. I carried on with stupid injuries, as did everybody else. So you can't leave the whole decision-making process to the players, but some nuance and common sense being applied, referees communicating really well, being communicated with really well, will aid that. Mm. But that wasn't what people were told originally. So they they're now, I wonder if because of that comms disaster, if they're actually going to ever get those people back because they're so offside. But that's a separate conversation. Just to, almost, there's a couple more off. We won't keep you all day. But in terms of this data, in terms of this studies, I, I kind of asked this question on behalf of 
loads of people on Twitter who are very upset. And I realise Twitter is not the real world. But these this data, these data, these studies, um, can we see them? Are they publicly available? Was the New Zealand mm. experiment, was the French experiment identical to the one we're doing? Or are they incomparable in certain ways? In, and therefore, are they relevant? Are they visible and relevant? They're the questions I'm asking you. What are these studies? Where are they? Yeah, it's a shortcoming at the moment, particularly in relation to the French trial, because they implemented that in 2019. And with COVID, okay, let's call it, give them a year's grace in the middle that was interrupted. But we only really then saw those for the first time in about September last, well, maybe August, September last year in internal meetings. And then they presented at our annual medical conference in, in November. And so that hasn't been published yet. It really needs to be. I mean, it's important to get this sort of stuff out there. The New Zealand trial was announced, or the change rather, was announced in November, and that will only be uh, implemented in their upcoming season. So we have to look to the future to get that one. I think it would be quite instructive and helpful for World Rugby to provide some support to the unions in terms of how they collate and then share that data publicly. I mean, the other stuff that I spoke about earlier, the research from back in 2016, that's been published in scientific journals, so people could find it there, not that people maybe want to go and read scientific journals. But I mean, we've tried again, and again, it's another lesson, we've tried to communicate it as widely as possible. You'd know, being in the media, there would have been a number of communications to you about the sanction directive and why it existed yeah. and what it was yeah. based upon. But it's been six, seven years, and there's still people who haven't fully appreciated that, and that's the fault of the communicator, which in this instance would be World Rugby. When we, we have to recognize that we have to do a better job at simplifying and understanding these messages. Now, that hasn't fully answered your question because the, the data isn't even out there yet, never mind translated and simplified. So it has to be done. It has to be made a priority moving forward. Ross, obviously... Like we, we've got um, safety is paramount. The health of, of people participating in rugby is we want to make the game as safe as possible. My question to you is, do, do you think there ever come a time when we've made it as safe as possible and, and we carry on? And the second part to that is, do you worry that if new laws, new tackle laws come in, that it might ruin the game of rugby and mm. we'll see more red cards? And people don't want to see red cards. You know, as much as we wanted to make the game safe, you still want to see 15 against 15. And the best, the, the thing about rugby, which people love, is that some people like tackling, some people don't like tackling. You know, there's, there's people that want to be physical, there's people that don't want to be physical. And do you, being working for World Rugby and being a lover of rugby, which I assume you are, is there a part of you that worries that this might turn people off the game? you know, as in viewing figures, as in participation and the knock-on effect that that will have? D definitely. Like, it's the, main, it's the main challenge always in trying to um, approach these issues. It's a huge concern. And I don't know where that point lies because there's two things you need to know in order to know if you've gone too far. One is how far should you go and then one, two is how far have you gone. So, in a sense, the first part of that's a philosophical question. And I've seen a good deal in the last week that shows that people clearly have different philosophies about risk. So the yeah. player who's playing the sport on the ground, whether it's at the professional level or the very low club levels, has got an assessment of their own risk. And they may look at this and say, you know, I've got a one in a hundred chance of a concussion. I'll take that risk on myself. Mm. 
that's that's fine that's their prerogative but i think alluding to something flat said earlier is if is if 150,000 people took that risk and it was 100, 100 one in 100 it would create a public health crisis and so then the authority has to say but hang on from our perspective one in 100 is too high because it's actually this is the sport that's responsible for the most hospital admissions, the highest health burden. Kids are missing school because of concussions more than any other reason. So as the authority, we have to now intervene and try and get that risk lower. So your, your assessment or your philosophy towards risk is very much determined by where you are and which direction you look at it from. That's problem number one. And then number two is we don't really know how the game changes with these changes in height. Um, you know, people often say, where's the data that shows that this will work well there isn't this is the first time it's being tried <laughs> between yeah. england and france so in the next two years we hope to have that data and you'd hope that the decision makers would be flexible and agile enough to say you know what we've only reduced concussions by 10 percent but we've changed the game enormously this wasn't worth it because that's what it is you're you're that's trying to reduce yeah. the, you're trying to reduce yeah. the risk of something but to bring the concussion risk down, you have to pay a price. And that price is changing the game. And how much are you willing to change it for a given yep. concussion reduction? And nobody knows that answer. All, all I know <laughs> from my position is we have to get the risk down slightly, if, if not a lot, uh, at first. And so I'd be looking at, you know, can we get it 15, 20% lower? And what does the game look like? And at some point based on feedback and constant dialogue maybe we can find you know it's almost exactly where that dimmer switch needs to be turned not we don't want the lights off but we don't want them too bright uh ross we shanks and i shanks the same i'm sure we we could talk to you for hours and hours and, and take over your life uh and probably move in with you and go on holiday and talk about this um for the next <laughs> 10 years but we that that's going to have to do us for now because of time constraints um i know i speak for both of us because we spoke to each other before we spoke to you that we're both thrilled that you came on our podcast um and i think that it's uh, what what i quite like is that you refer to the massive backlash as the conversation and you're pleased it's happening and that's because you are you're kind of more interested in um uh sort of data and facts and and results than you are in uh, the politics and pr of it all which i must say quite interests us but it's all a bit subjective uh we're, we're thrilled you came on we're very very grateful and i'm sure one of these days uh we'll we'll chat to you again but from shanks and from me it's a big thank you and uh and uh again very grateful cheers ross yeah, thanks. I was thrilled to be invited and, and enjoyed it. So I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Okay, send, an invoice, thanks a lot. send an invoice to Flats at Second Homes <laughs> and Listed Building Limited and he'll get that paid, all right? All right. Enough funny ones, yeah. Nice Cheers, one. Ross. Thanks, Cheers, Ross. Right. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That was ruddy bloody interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, I've got yeah. so many questions Brilliant. to ask him. But I've got questions written down here that we didn't ask because we just don't want to keep him all day. He's joined us from South Africa, very kind and, and all that stuff. But, you know, it, one thing I was going to ask was that, you know, the, do the does the amateur game really need it? The pro game is savage. The games I was at the weekend are just savage, mm. mate. They get more savage by the by the month, it feels, sometimes. And, Irish, the Irish game yesterday um, against Quinns. There were just some yeah. massive collisions. I know what you that. mean but about I, the amateur yeah. game because it's struggling. Well, it is in Wales and it may be struggling in England mm. as well. And now you're asking players now to forget what they've been taught for the last 30, 40 years and start tackling in a different way. Start tackling low. And as I said to him on the um, interview then, Flats, like, we know loads of boys and we've played with loads of boys that hate tackling. That is just natural in rugby because some don't like the physical side of rugby. Some prefer the attacking side, the evasion side. Um, you know, being able to throw mispasses, being able to put people in space. They absolutely detest getting down low, getting dirty and being physical because either their body shapes don't suit it. I, You know, there's different bravery in rugby. I, I, I'm not. I wasn't the bravest by a long stretch, but there were certain boys there were. that would just throw everything into tackles, and you know that that's what made them so good. So we're talking about tackling. Like everybody is good at tackling. They're not. It's a skill set, like vision, like kicking. Not everyone has different um, levels of being able to to tackle. So. It's going to be so hard to implement in the amateur community game. Yeah. And it might put people off in a sport that is, it's not dying, but there's certainly a lot of bad publicity following it around at the moment. Yeah, it's not It's not dying. It's just, no, it, it, and, you know, the English game certainly needs participation numbers to rise and all that. And there's the balance that Ross talks about needs striking. Um I just we 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 don't want to rehash too much of the stuff that we talked about with him or we've talked about last week. But I, what I would say is like, you know, it's with well the, the games at the weekend, I was at the Chiefs game and the Irish game, and there's lots of people chatting around, and I sort of come to the conclusion that the the, the communication of it all was so poor that having been, and I say this with a a wry smile, 
having been a comms director myself at Bath for two years and most of my colleagues would say that I was a joke and I didn't do anything, but they would be lying. I was very influential. What I would say is that all too often, and I don't know exactly what happens and happened at the RFU, but I cannot imagine a professional communications team who oversee all these releases and contact journals and all that sort of stuff deal with them. I cannot imagine them thinking this was a good plan. I can imagine them being overruled and then left to be hammered and effectively thrown under the bus. That's what I can imagine. Because the um, RFU wanted to be seen as leading the way, maybe. Yeah, so we now hear stuff, yeah, we want to be the first to drop this. We want to be the first to be pioneers. Yeah. Because other, other unions might follow. World Rugby are going to ratify it. Let's get out there first. Yeah, yeah, but now they realise there was no conversation. It's hit them really hard. They've had to apologise. They've had to concede. Not concede, you know, tell everyone there's going to be way more nuance to it than effectively hip bones and kneecaps, please. So it's all been... Martin Bayfield said it, summed it up perfectly in one sentence on BT Sport on Sunday night. It's all been communicated back to front. And he's dead right. So there's a massive repair job to do now. But... Then there's stuff, we hear stuff like, well, the is it the committee, is that what we call them? There were, you know, so loads of them weren't there because they were at the Blacklist Rugby Awards on the Monday night or whatever night it was. Loads of them weren't there. And then, then we hear about, well, actually, some of them thought it was going to be a discussion. And then some of them were told, uh, allegedly, that actually, no, we've got to make a decision tonight. Hang on a minute, I thought we weren't making a decision yet. And then the word waste appeared from nowhere. I mean, define what waste is. Ross spoke about it. Define what that is. And then actually, the word waste... Someone, someone, somebody might say the word waste can't be in there and someone might say it has to be in there. You know, but then it's all, all this. I do think that if as an episode, it has, it has painted the RFU in a particularly poor light and it, you know, being fit for purpose is perhaps not the right um, expression here, but it, it does paint them in a light of, you know, outright, sort of incompetence in terms of being relatable sort of PR public incompetence is what they look publicly incompetent and it's very easy to blame the people that put the press releases out but ultimately they've got to do what they're told to do so either it was a comms it was the comms team or it wasn't and I look at that and think you know I was when I was at Bath for a couple of years there were times and I was like I don't think we should put that out I don't think we should do that I think we should say this and it's Basically, like, shut up, mate. We're doing this. It, nobody was horrible, but it was like, yeah, 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 sure. No, no, that's how we do it. And, you know, that's it. And that that's ultimately why I left the job, because I was like, I don't particularly enjoy this, because it says director on my little business cards, but I don't actually have a power base to make, to actually make any decisions here. So ultimately, what is the point? Um, so I just left. Um, but, you know, you... People are generally comms directors and comms teams because they're really good at communicating and they get it. Not all CEOs, MDs, they're not all very good at communicating. That's why they're not in comms roles often. Anyway. The biggest thing I took from uh, the show yesterday on BT Sport was, well, how long does Martin Bayfield keep having to wear that boot? Oh, mate, he's had a shocker. Is it, is it just a fashion accessory now? Has he got used to nah, it? mate. No, he hates it, mate. What is it? He's, no, it's sponsored. It's Prada. <laughs> no, he's got... I mean, I don't want to give away his private medical information. It's nothing... Um, it's ingrown to It's nothing that personal, but he's he's got a problem with his foot. Okay. And it is... Wet. I think it is... Uh, yeah, I think it is particularly shite, actually, what is okay. happening with his foot. But I... 
I don't. He wouldn't give a toss if I said it. I'm sure, but I won't bother. That's fine. Uh, it's fine. It's not. He hasn't got. He hasn't got like. He hasn't got horrible disease and it's really like that. He's just. He's basically. Normally, got, you wear one of them if you've sprained your ankle. You've got a little hairline fracture, but he seems to have worn it. No, but because he also, mate. If you think about it, he's so big. Mm. He's six ten and 130 kilos. He's in great shape, but he's six ten and 130. Like that's a lot of weight through your foot. So, and in that boot, he's seven foot. Well, half the time when he when he walks on his left foot, he's six ten. Right foot, eleven seven foot. He's balancing. You talked about then flat about people not being in the right jobs or being in the right jobs. Um, and one of the reasons why you left um, couldn't do what you wanted to do. It's relevant because Wales have officially lost Steve Phillips now, the CEO of Welsh yeah. Rugby. So he's now thoughts, out of his please. Job. Had had to happen. I I cannot see how it could not happen with everything going on with the bullying claims, with the misogyny claims, um, with the culture that has been set. And it's not just him, it's the board as well it needs to modernise. It needs to be more professional. It's we're a professional outfit, we're a hundred million pound business and amateurs are still running the game, which we spoke about before. But commercially as well, when you're looking at some of your big commercial partners, your kit sponsors, principality like people like that are going to be thinking twice about investing money into WIU with all that bad PR. So there had to be change. Yeah. You couldn't carry on like it was. There's massive issues with budget still set for the four clubs. Now, the WIU's biggest asset is their players because without players coming through from the regions, they aren't going to perform and Wales aren't going to do very well. You know, So in order for the WIU to do well, the Welsh team need to do well. In order for the Welsh team to do well, the regions need to produce those players. And at the moment, flat, 18 months ago, like in principle, budgets were agreed for what clubs could spend this year, so this season. Yeah. And they're still having arguments now about the funding for this season. Now they've not. I don't think they've received money or and they don't still finally know their spend, let alone next season. So now we're starting to lose players to other clubs and certain players who are coming out of contracts will be having chats with Japan, France, England. Um, and if they're uncertain about what's happening and if the four regions aren't coming back with definitive offers, then you're just going to take those and you're going to lose players straight away. Yeah. So I had to change. Nigel Walker is now um, acting CEO role, but... Things need to change quickly. Budgets need to be set, agreed, so clubs know what they can spend, what they can't spend. They can start re-signing players. It is carnage at the moment. We look at complete shambles. Hayley Parsons wrote a letter, and it was published online, about the issues they've got. I think that was sort of the final nail in the coffin. There's been a vote of no confidence from all the four regions, plus nearly all the feeder clubs below that, your premiership clubs, your grassroots clubs. Absolutely everyone i've never seen anything like it and he had to go whether he stepped down and remained as chief financial officer because that's what he was and he took the role um, when it became available and and um who was it before him um our kid it was uh i can't remember i remember in a minute martin phillips sorry it was yep. martin phillips and yeah He's now gone and we have to search 
high and low for someone that can that has empathy with the regions as well and it's not all you know the, the regions have made mistakes there's no doubt about that you know they're not exactly performing that well but in order for them to perform better things like budgets need to be agreed you know yeah. what's they want the, they want the regions to take out more loans to pay back there's already a 5 million pound covid loan which they've got to pay back so they need someone to completely i, I think it would be a good time now to wipe the slate clean completely get a new professional board in get a new ceo in agree new budgets agree new funding agree new loan deals yeah no absolutely no chance i want anything involved with it but wipe it clean start again in a more professional 100 million pound business like building a hotel they built a hotel parkgate and that's a long term investment it will make money in the long term because it's a great hotel um the hospitality packages you can you can sell there the, the events you can use there it's right next to the stadium but the short term is where the money needed to be spent i th- i think so okay anyway there we are flats um uh, what's happening with there. the RFU? <laughs> couple of bits well yeah RFU and WRU have been hammered a bit on this pod uh, just in, in rugby terms um, oh Campbell Johnston the All Blacks tight end who played for Beeritz for a while yep. has come out as gay the first All Black to come out as gay um, what a legend firstly for doing that um, in, in in what you might call sort of the one, one of the ultimate sort of whatever macho means macho environments in the world he's come out as that and just I'm sure there'll just be pretty much universal love and support for him. Um, I went down to Beeritz with Tins and, and Andy Beatty to visit Ian Bolcher when he played down there. We just went for a mini break, Tom. We yeah. just went for a mini break. It was the night that um, I think Andy Beatty was sick on Imanol Aronordiki's Air Force Ones. I know he was Jordans <laughs> on his Jordans. Um, and as, as he was sick, he looked at it and said, filet mignon, filet mignon, mon ami. Because he all his steak had come out anyway um, and Imanol didn't mind we had a brilliant night Campbell Johnston was it's funny because I look at it in two ways like we're on the same WhatsApp group Tommy is obviously and I I texted this article this morning to the lads and I said to Bolsh what guy like Campbell Johnston was he goes mate absolute superstar like he was just best bloke on tour really pissed and all that but he just brilliant company from the word go straight off the game never met him before just a top bloke and you now look back with slightly different memories and slightly different sort of tinted glasses, and you think, was he living this lie? Was he getting was he getting really pissed to make things go away in his mind or to escape from something? You think, I mean, maybe he was. I mean, it's, I mean yep. just you just all, all I think when I see that escape. is you let legend for coming out, and you poor bastard at not being able to tell us sooner because yep. it's one of those things. It's easy to say, well, tell us, mate. We don't care. Mm. It's so easy to say that, but people don't. It's very, very difficult for people still. Hopefully, it's less difficult than it once was. But anyway, just a great bloke, mate. I mean, one of those guys, I remember saying to Bolsh at one point, might come back down. And I said, is Campbell still around? He's like, no, he's not around anymore. I said, oh, I'll leave it then. You're boring. Um, but Campbell was great fun. I think he. I think it might have been that night that he, he nicked a... Um, was it that night or a different night? I think it was him. This is all allegedly because I'll check with Bolsh. But I think it was a uh, what's the what's it called? A roller when you roll over the tarmac, you know, the, on yeah. the motorways. Yeah, a roller. I think, I think he so. nicked a roller or something. <laughs> Didn't yeah. try to. Anyway, anyway, really good fun. Um, that's that. Which is I'm thrilled. He's thrilled. He's been able to come out. It's brilliant stuff. Um, Henry Slade 
Courtney Laws, we, we sort of knew was injured anyway, but Henry Slade is out of England, Scotland on Saturday. So I was going to ask you, Tommy, you've got Henry Slade injured, Owen Farrell's captain, Ollie Lawrence has come into the squad. Uh, by the way, so is Anthony Watson, and I'd pick him. He was really good for Leicester. Um, so what do, what do you do with England's midfield now? Manu and Lawrence. Manu at 13? Yeah, Lawrence at 12. Farrell at ten. Yep. Well, he's going to play his start, isn't he? Yep. Yep. That's punchy. That's two. That's two punchy units. That is. Yep. Okay. Yep. I didn't expect you to say that. What do you think? Well, I would say. I don't know quite. I thought you were going to say, "Well, they probably got to go back to Smith and Farrell mm. at ten and 12. And I was going to say, "Tommy, I just, do something new." I just don't know if that works. I think that's a combination that you can bring off the bench and change things up. But I think you start with those two in the centres because. That's that's formidable, mate. Do you know one right? We won't talk too much about what's gone on in the week of the URC or the no. Gallagher because we got the Six Nations is coming up this weekend. Yeah. Now there's one player that I think will be a breakthrough player this year, and he's been capped already. But Sione Turpalutu, yes, Scotland. Yeah. Now he's playing at Glasgow, and he's been capped, but I think he's awesome. I think he's Do got you? all round game. Uh, he's aggressive when he carries. He's aggressive in defence, but you can play off him as well. He's got pace. He's got a good attacking, kicking game. So I'm talking like putting little grubbers through for wingers, um, identifying where space is, being able to get the ball there. And I really rate him highly. And I think he could be one that we've seen already be capped but I think it could be like I think this could be his year where he, he sort of starts to really perform and people watch him start thinking oh wow this guy's a serious operator I'm glad I listened to Shanks so is Cam Redpath though yeah I think he's better classy player okay, I think he's yeah. better mate I think he's got more of an all round game I think it's more physical as well okay, like boy. Cam Redpath is really good in attack really good ball yeah. player but I think he just gives you a bit more of a physical edge and I think yeah. you need that if you're going to play Chris Harris at 13. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Lovely. what do you think England's chances are in Murrayfield? First game up. Twickenham, Twickenham. That's exactly what I meant. Um, yeah, the other one. Go on then. Good good chance. Um, I spoke to Jamie Ritchie in the week and I said, you might. I don't know what the bookies say because I don't gamble. I don't, I don't do bookies. But then I bet you I can get you gambling by the end of the week. Please do. I give you ten to one odds. Sorry, but so I yeah I said, was it like I said you might be favourites? He said, I don't know, we might be. Uh, We certainly don't feel like underdogs, you know. And it's kind of like, well, Scotland have got a great chance to go down there and do a job, but England are traditionally difficult to beat at home. New coach, everyone's showing off, trying to improve, uh, trying to impress. Um, I'll be fascinated to see what selection does, but I look at a team like Scotland and I think if they get you know, if front five does a decent job, um, and you'd imagine it will, some good experienced boys in there, and you've got Tui Tui Bone, Tui Polito in really good form, Chris Harris very hard to break down, um, some brilliant players in the back three, strike players, Darcy Graham, Duane van der Merwe, Stuart Hogg if he's fit, and you've got Finn Russell, that is a recipe for if the team, if your back line gets good ball, they could beat, they could do a job on England, they really could. I, I still, I think it's probably because England's win record at Twickenham is good, but also B 
because it's always just something that is said that England are very hard to beat. I still feel like England go in as favourites. Mm. But the difference is we don't quite know how they're going to play. Are they going to, are they going to go... You know, remember when, when Brendan Fenter went into Sarries all those years ago, he basically, they became a kick and clap, kick chase team, set piece, kick chase, boot the ball. And they gradually built layers on top of that and became a much more threatening, complete team. And Steve Borthwick, in a sense, paired Leicester right back and gave them a really simple game plan. They did score lots of tries and all that, but you see how they beat Sarries in the final. It was, you know, they didn't just steam up the midfield. They didn't do the Ollie Lawrence and Manu Tuolani anything. They actually gave Saracens, I think someone called it, said that described it as giving Saracens nothing to hit. So actually, they just boot the thing all the time and kick chase the hell out of it. And maybe England are paired back to that point. Um, so we don't know what's coming for England. So it's really, really interesting. But it's hard to gauge how England might perform when we've got no idea what they're gonna do, how they're going to play. When you've got a new team like that with a new coach in charge, and it's the same with Wales, really, you're going to take less risks. So you're not going to try and play all-out attack like what Ireland might do. Because Ireland are settled, Ireland are basically Leinster and combinations work there they know how to attack they're really well drilled and they can do it and the timing's good and everyone knows three or four calls three or four phases down the line to get into position to attack teams whether it's first phase second third fourth you know when the opportunity comes they align themselves much like rugby league and they attack and they attack with numbers they attack with angles and the timing is is nearly absolutely perfect. Wales and England won't be able to do that because attack coaches won't have that, that amount of time with them to do that. That You're only able to develop that with a group of players that have been together for a long time. And I yeah. think Wales and England, there'll be less risk in their game plan. And yeah. You can't play the same way you play for your club as you do internationally because games are harder. Teams are more organised. You have to kick more. Um, and a lot of it becomes a battle of the breakdown and discipline. And then, you know, with dis- with poor discipline, it allows attacking teams to get into your half with possession from a lineup. Yeah. Uh, and set pieces is, is really key as well. Selection is the biggest thing for me, similar to what we just yeah. talked about with England. A lot of it is down to your centres because you'll always have an attacking player at 10. That's just, that's in their DNA. That's what 10s do. They attack. But if you really want to have another string to your bow and be more expansive in the way you attack, you need a ball player in that back line somewhere in those centres. And whether your 15 moves into the centre for attack as a, as a secondary ball player, but somewhere along that back line, you need a ball player. And well, I think you do, unless you're, a, unless you're able to play like South Africa, which you just yeah. rely on big units, big set piece, Big scrum time, win penalties. And, and a couple of geniuses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a couple of special players, like a Colby, for instance. So 12 is a big position for me, for Wales. And I don't know what he's going to do. I think we need a ball player there. So I think we need to pick a player. And that needs to be our player for the next three games. But that's not how Cats works, is it? No, it doesn't. He likes a unit. He, we don't have units at 12, really. We've got Nick Tompkins, who can can play 12 we've got Kieran Williams who's on excellent form for the Ospreys who gives you gain line and makes breaks and gets you over the front foot and we've also got Joe Hawkins who was very good against Australia in his first cap but he doesn't start enough games for the Ospreys at the moment because Kieran Williams tends to get that 12 spot yeah 
So I don't know. I think we need to. I think Wales cannot compete with um, Ireland, with England, with France physically in that pack because I just don't think we've got big enough ball carriers. So therefore, we have to play a wider game. We have to play it away from those big congested areas and those big runners. So we have to play it outside the 13 channel. We have to play it outside. So you think a wide, wide game might suit Wales better? Not wide, wide, uh, but maybe wide, middle wide. Yeah, around the edges, yeah. mate, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Away from, away from the big packs, because I think we'll get physically dominated and we'll turn the ball over, we'll get held up. And we'll lose possession. But if we if we're able to play it a little bit wider, a few more tip ons, we play it into the middle more than running off nine, then I think we got a far better chance. But who knows? I've got no idea. Like what I do know is it. for the short term, Gatlin's the best man and you get reaction from the players. Not sure he's gonna be long term for Wales and, and whether that's the right decision. I think we might have to see who comes out of um a coaching cycle and who's available after the World Cup. Someone like Dave Rennie might be amazing. I think it might be time to, to freshen up. But in getting the best out of players and sorting the culture out and giving them confidence and self-belief, in this short period, Gatland is the man. Yep. All right. Okay, this is good. This is good. Um, this is content. Are you watching Happy Valley? No, I'm still watching... Fowder, season four, nearly finished. Yep. Very good. Well, and I've got um, The Last of Us, episode three to get into. But I will watch Happy Valley, I promise you. I've got episode three to get into as well. Uh, Happy Valley is brilliant. It's immense. Um, just realised to watch the Mayor of Kingstown series one. Just realised there's a series two last night. I was scrambling for something to watch. Kate Winslet's still in it? No, that's a different series. The Kate Winslet thing is a different series. That's oh. Mayor, as in, isn't it? M-A-R-E of Easttown. This is the mayor of Kingstown. Ah, yeah. okay. I gotcha. Yeah. It's really good. It, well, is it really good? It is good. Okay. Um, but you, you look at like Rotten Tomatoes, it gets two, two, two stars. It's not nothing like a two-star series. It's mm. good. I like it. Okay. Well, do you know what, Flats? Will that do us? Yeah, I'll go for some chicken pie. Leftover chicken pie now. Okay, can we just... Should we just give our predictions for this weekends yeah England win narrowly what do you say to that one yeah okay okay because it's home alright that's why you want um, I think Ireland win Ireland too good at the moment we're I'm not sure how Wales is going to play unless there's a red card okay which can happen we won a championship in 2021 three reds so you're going to come and beat you at home do you I think Ireland will win it yeah, and um, France will beat Italy and Italy is my, yeah. my prediction. Of, so there we go. Cool. Ireland, cool. England and France. Um, if you had to put money on who's going to win the Six Nations. Ireland. Yeah, Ireland. They've got England and France at home, which are the yeah. two big ones for them. Yeah. I think it's England last game on the Super Saturday, which will be absolutely epic. Absolutely epic, yeah. Um, and let's hope for a, a good Six Nations, okay? Yeah, all right, boy. Well done. Well done, everyone. And thanks again to Ross. Ross will be listening at some point. But cheers, Ross. You're a good man. And uh, chat to you all next week. Yeah? Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 